way to think about that. Thank you, Alex. If you have little ones do you, and you'd like them in children's church all the way through sixth grade, if you'd like them to be in church, they can be there or they can stay with you. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. If you're a guest with us today, we're glad that you're here. There's a QR code there on the seat in front of you. Scan that, would you, and, and let us know your visit, how we can best pray for you and serve you and communicate with us that way. It'd be great. Thank you for being with us. We're going to continue study. If you've not been with us through the two letters, First and Second Corinthians, we've been about uh, several years, about two and a half years going through this study. We're right at the end, chapter 13 of Second Corinthians. Marks of ministry, we called it the, the, the overall study, God's plan for a healthy church. And marks of ministry as we hit chapter 12, verse 11, all the way through the end of chapter 13. I want, to, I want to begin, of course, as we always do, by reading the Word of God that we're going to study today. So turn there, chapter 13, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 4, if you would. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who sinned in the past and to all the rest as well. That if I come again, I will not spare anyone, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Verse 4, for indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God, for we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you began our in-depth look at this section last week, just really got our feet wet in this section of Scripture. We were able to get a handle on what Paul is speaking about in the first three verses. He is speaking about church discipline, difficult subject. I've told you before, as, as you come to minister the Word, it, it can be difficult for a number of reasons to teach a passage. It can be difficult because the passage itself is very hard, and you have to wrestle with your own ignorance and come to an understanding of the passage and then be able to communicate that so people can understand it can be uh, difficult because it, um, uh, it is hard to hear uh, or hard to preach. It can be hard to hear or hard to preach because perhaps uh, I'm struggling with that, and so I have to wrestle with my own sinfulness and repent and come so I can give it to you, or hard to hear because they're, it's passages that fall hard on the church's ears. But as we come to work our way through verse by verse, we just come to what we come to, and we have to teach through it. Uh, however difficult it is, I would say that, that it is that one that is hard to hear, certainly for the church, and so it's one of those that you can uh, um, understand. Jesus laid the foundation in the church early on with church discipline, early when the church was first established and those relationships were in the future. He talks to his disciples in Matthew 18, verse 15. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be established. Those are people that have also seen the sinful behavior, not people who have been told about it. And verse 17, it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And we looked at that at length last time. It's really clear in its meaning. Paul is clear in his meaning. However, this teaching is unknown to a majority of modern believers because leaders in the church have avoided it. But as we went through last time, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and we see the important positions that holiness and purity and repentance are to hold in the church body, and you couple that then with the obvious 
absence of church discipline symptoms are being manifested. And we looked at this last time, right at the end. Really, it's, it's the first one is a moral decline and spiritual indifference of the church. That is certainly manifest in the absence of these kinds of things in the church. And then also, and more importantly, I think, a, a shallow commitment to, the, to teach and do the Scripture, which would cure the first one. Because the Bible's not unclear about this subject. It couldn't be more clear, as a matter of fact. And it's a lack of reverence for what Jesus had to say to the church, particularly to the seven example churches of Revelation 2 and 3, which are during the church age and represent churches through all the church age. We see repent, 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 and if you don't, I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent, Revelation 2, 5. Repent, 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 or I'm going to come to you quickly and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth, Revelation 2, 16. Repent, 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 or if they don't listen, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, put them out of the church. I mean, we just see this over and over again. It's not, it's not unclear. And it's balanced, of course, with Revelation 3.19. Uh, Those whom I love, Jesus said, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Remember, Jesus starts all of those times with the church. He says, I know your deeds. So the Lord of the church obviously knows what goes on in the church, and then he, he calls attention to some parts of the church where repentance is needed, and then there to respond accordingly. But instead of that, many churches say by default, they don't say this out loud, but it's by default because they ignore it. They say, Jesus, you know, I know you're really concerned about the holiness of the church, but we're really not. We're concerned about lots of other things. And if we understand our passage as we do, and 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18 and Luke 7 and Revelation 2 and 3, and we'll see a few of those again in just a minute. If we understand those correctly, we can see that church discipline is not an option you can choose or discard. It's not a preference that you can choose to do or not do. It's a necessary and essential mark of true Christianity in the life of the church. And without it, the church becomes worldly. And so we see then people in the church who've never experienced any of this, don't know these passages. It's not that they haven't been exposed to worldliness in the church and unrepentant nature in people inside the church, obvious. It's just they've never seen anything done about it as should have been done about it. So, Paul is going to do this, he's going to do this precisely as the Lord would have him do it with the worldly, unrepentant group that's still destroying the peace of the church and the purity of the church and leaving the whole lump, if you will, leavened. And so he's going to bring this to their attention. So as we pointed out last time, the main problem with the Corinthian church is the same problem we still have in the modern church, and that is the church has lost its interest in holiness. And we pointed out that the typical reaction in some churches is to become content to be fellowships of independent members with minimal accountability to God and leaving less to each other. And that really is the house movement summed up. We want to be where there's less accountability, less authority. We want to be in a place where we can do what we want and nobody's poking around in our business. And, and it just again, that just proves the letter's relevancy again, God's plan for a church. And the example here then can be prophylactic for the church. Even if it's not having this trouble, it, it makes sure that they won't or certainly be corrective with the medicine that it needs. So when the church has lost its interest in purity, then it's lost its power too. And as we saw last time, everyone in the church is responsible for curbing worldliness. That's what we saw in Galatians 6.1. Remember, it says, brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, that's the idea, trapped in sin. That happens when you allow sin in your life. You get trapped in it temporarily. If anybody's trapped in sin, what are you supposed to do? You who are spiritual, he tells the Galatian church, come and restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. He lays the onus on the church first to look around and make sure these things are happening. And, and so 
when that's supposed to happen, but the spiritual ones in the church are not taking care of those kinds of things, the open, unrepentant sin that they're supposed to do, or the church gets past the two or three witnesses, then it falls on those who lead the church then to confront those things with discipline. And so that sums up what we learned last time. Paul is getting ready to travel this third time to be with them. And this is the cloud that's hanging over Paul's head. He knows that he con- he's going to come, and he's taking this time to be aside with these groups of people in the church who have continued in unrepentant sin and, and uh, wickedness. And he wants to make sure that they get another chance to repent because he'd prefer they do that before he comes. Because when he comes, and he, if he has to do this, it's very humiliating for him, uh, not because they're making fun of him, which they always do, but because he's taught them all this time, and then instead following the teaching they've chosen to walk in sinfulness and it's also going to be mournful for him which is the response the church is supposed to have when people in open sinfulness it's like a death in many respects that you mourn over the fact that they've caused that testimony blight on their own testimony and then they've really caused the church to have a stumbling block and and this is not unusual for the apostle paul he understood the importance of this task Uh, he didn't like it but there are a number of examples and i want to I want you to look at them with me. We're going to turn to a number of places where he had to confront issues like this, but I, I think it'll be instructional for you. Plus, it'll help to shore up what we learned last time if this is new for you. But we already looked at this just uh, briefly. He is talking to the church in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 3, and he's remote from the church at that point, and he is, it, it's concerning unrepentant immorality. And he says this, he says, um, For my part, though absent in the body but present in the spirit, I've already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus I've decided he says to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus your boasting is not good do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough so he confronted this because he knew it was going on he got a report probably from Chloe about what was going on in the church this open sinfulness And he wanted the sinner to be freed, certainly from the chastening that comes from the Lord as a result of unrepentant sinfulness. And he wanted the sinner to enjoy the blessings of obedience. That's the reason why we teach obedience, right? Because we know that when we walk in obedience, the Lord is very gracious to us as we are to our children. When they walk in obedience, we want to make sure that they have what they need and take care of their needs. And they don't have, you don't have to chasten them. But furthermore, and even more importantly, as we see here, as this last statement makes very clear, he wanted the church to have power because he knows that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He wants the church to have impact. He wanted to be, he wanted transformed lives to be on exhibit and open unrepentant sin leavens everybody and he didn't want that to happen. And so this is not a new pattern for the Apostle Paul. He confronted sin in the church in Thessalonica. Here's where I want you to turn. We're going to be here for a little bit because it has a number of examples. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, 6 through 12. And of course, we're going to move into 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus as we leave first and second corinthians so i won't spend a huge amount of time here but it's i think it's instructional for us and illustrative of the point that paul has to confront sin it's not unusual and he tasks the church to do it as well and you're going to see that mixed in here but verse six it says in second corinthians 3 6 now we command you brethren so is it optional if he says we command you brethren it's not optional is it right anytime it's expressed in that way it's in the imperative you have to do it so it's, it's not like, well, we'd rather not. He doesn't say, well, if you have time or if you feel like it or if you feel up to it or if the church is uh, compatible with it, go ahead and do this. He says, no. He says, um, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you, what is it? 
Keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. So what's the church supposed to do with one who leads an unruly life? It's pretty clear, isn't it? And just to be clear what an unruly life is, um, unruly is an adjective. It has to do with um, lining up in rank. So it was used with an army marching formation, and the idea there, at actes, is uh, the ad is a, is a negative particle. Uh, actes is to line up. At actes is to be out of line, not being where you're supposed to be, where you're supposed to be. And it's out of rank for us. And, and in context, it's one here is out of place. Now, they're not where they're supposed to be. And then it says leads is a Greek compound verb, peripateo. It has to do with where you walk. In this context, actively walking apart from where they should be and where should they be. Look at verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. So in other words, they're not in line with Paul's example. Paul laid an example for them and gave them teaching. We'll see in just a minute. They're not walking according to that. They're walking right or left of it wherever they want to walk. So it makes it pretty clear who he's speaking about. People who won't walk in obedience to what the Word of God says over a long period of time. They're just doing their own thing. He gave them the example that they were to follow. And he taught them long enough for them to know how to do it. There is an objective standard to Christianity. Christianity isn't, well, this is how I do it. This is my relationship to Jesus. You don't have a right to tell me what my relationship to Jesus is supposed to look like and how I'm supposed to respond. Uh, this is what I think is important, so, you know, butt out. You know, the church isn't supposed to be fellowships of independent members with minimal accountability to God and even less to each other. Private, autonomous, don't poke around in my life kind of, th of things, see? Church is not supposed to be that way. And I think we, I don't have to make that point. We've made it very clearly. Every single time that the church is spoken to, it's talked about community. It's talked about the influence of one another. It's talked about mutual accountability and bearing one another's burdens and coming alongside one another and all those kinds of things. And Paul gave them examples from the Word of God and direct instruction on what they're to do and why. And this becomes the standard. And there were some in the church that weren't walking according to that standard. They were everywhere. And not only that, Paul says, but we also modeled it for you. And this, again, is Paul's life of integrity, not perfection. He wasn't telling them one thing and doing another. He says, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. That's the last part of verse 7. So in other words, we did what we were supposed to do before you. We gave you that example. Paul's not perfect, but there's this, this attitude of repentance always and keeping a short sin list and walking in humility and sanctification. And he gave him that example, and so did the people who were with him. And so we didn't act in undisciplined manner. We didn't walk outside the parameters of God's word, and we expect you to follow us. And then he brings something else up that is obviously troubling the church. Look at verse 8. So there are a number of examples here that can help us. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because, verse 9, we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow in our, our example. So, what's going on? Well, laziness is obviously prevalent here, people not working. We mentioned this a couple of years ago when everybody was out demonstrating and everybody's burning down cities and doing all these kinds of things. As I told you, there's no, there's no possible way a believer should be doing this. What's a believer's responsibility? Provide for the needs of their family, work in quietness, eat your own bread, and these kinds of things. But here's people are lazy. They're not working, um, and, and, uh, and subsequently, they're in need all the time. That's what happens when you don't work. You're always in need. Now, just to clarify, Paul's not talking about people who can't work. He's not talking about people who uh, perhaps uh, are... are uh, have orphans or their widows or, or they're struggling or 
physically. There's plenty of compassion here. We always see that in the church. He's talking about people who could and don't. So they're not walking in accordance to the doctrine and they're not following in the footsteps that they should be following. And they're lazy. And apparently, it appears to be the case here where we said we, we did, didn't take anybody's bread without paying for it. Apparently, Paul didn't take any support for the church, from this church at this point. That's not unusual for us to read. We saw that in Corinth, but for a different reason. And he says, not because it wasn't appropriate, because I think he was concerned that it would be misconstrued. He'd be, he would not have a strong a teaching opportunity. Why? Well, some who weren't working would look at what the church gave Paul and criticize Paul for what they gave him and for not working, see. So, Paul denied himself again for the purpose of testimony, and then he says this, look at verse 10. He says, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, he's not to eat either. Well, that's harsh. For we hear, Paul says, that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, there again, there's our words, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies, verse 12, now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, in the imperative, you have to do it. Work in quiet fashion. Eat your own bread. So Paul confronts some in the church, and it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I mean, we can see what's going on, and he just says, listen, you don't work, you can't eat. If you're able to work and you don't work, and you could be working, but you're not providing for your needs, then you don't get to eat. You, don't, you need to work with your hands and provide for your needs. Don't be a busybody. That's just someone who's constantly concerned with the affairs of other people. That's in place of working. Uh, go to work, get a job, earn your food. So Paul confronts the church. He doesn't like to do it. It's a humbling experience for him. It's, it brings him low. He has to mourn over it because he sees these things going on. It creates a roadblock for the testimony of the church. But it's very similar and in line with what we see in Revelation 2 and 3, which are, I know your deeds, and here's the things that need to be corrected. Repent and return to what you're supposed to do. So it's not, it's not terrible. It's just these are things that hinder the church and take the power from it. These are the things that hinder your testimony. These things need to be corrected. It's not unusual. But if anyone's not willing to work and he's not to eat either, what's that called? What's that called? That's called discipline, right? Go to work, get a job, earn your food. He doesn't want to do it, but the Lord expects purity. He expects a good testimony from his bride. And, and so he's tapping the church with this. The letter's going to be read there. Somebody's going to have to act on it. This is how it has to be, see? The Lord, uh, if there's something there, he, unrepentant, worldly, in the church, the Lord expects repentance, and then he gives the church further instructions concerning this person or people. Look at the next verse in verse 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good, so don't you know, be jaded um, by the freeloaders. It's always discouraging, isn't it, when you're working hard and a lot of people are not, and you're like kind of picking up the tab, kind of like now in our country. Um, keep meeting needs. Loving people, ministering in the church. And then this, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. So he gave other instruction and then gave the final instruction again. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. What is that? That's discipline, isn't it? That's recognizing this doesn't need, shouldn't be going on. We need to step in. Who's supposed to do it? The church is supposed to do it. And again, you're not, you're not, he's not your enemy. We see in Matthew 18, the person who continues in sin and is warned by one and warned by two or three and then warned by the church and then continues in sin. They're not your enemy, but you put them out. Why? Because they are causing a hindrance to the testimony of the church 
and causing a roadblock and their leaven that leavens the whole lump. And they're acting like an unbeliever, so you treat them like an unbeliever. That just means that they're a witnessing opportunity. Why, why would you say that? Well, they're a believer, really, because if you walk in t- complete disobedience over a long period of time, you call into question any, rec- any relationship you may have with Jesus. Because isn't that the definition of knowing Jesus as your Savior is to be obedient to him, is it not? I mean, that, that really, I mean, I think you can make that argument over and over again. So he just tells the church, listen, until he gets this right, don't hang with him. Was the instruction optional? No more optional than Matthew 18. No more optional than what the passage we see in, in 2 Corinthians 13.1. Would it have been okay for the offending brother or sister to say, you know, I don't think you should be up in my business. That's very unchristian. But that's a very common response. Why are you talking to me like that? I mean, why are you judging me? I'm not, I'm not judging your motives. I don't know what your heart is. I just know what you're doing. What you're doing violates what the Word of God says, and you're doing it over a long period of time, which indicates that you're not walking with Him. Okay? That's discernment. And without discernment, beloved, it'd be impossible to know if you were saved or anyone else was saved, right? I mean, discernment is part of spiritual gifts the Lord gives to church. You have to know. Otherwise, you're putting people in positions of authority who aren't born again. There's fruit, isn't there? And so, very important. So, the, the, the person, he might say that, but that it doesn't hold any water. And... Um, you might imagine our passage and the one we just read, they're not the only places we find these examples. I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy 1. Will you do that? We're just barely scratching the surface, but I want to look at enough illustrations to help us adjust our thinking about life in the church if it needs adjustment. So you may not understand this, but I, then we need to adjust our thinking. If you understand this, it'll just confirm what you understand and how it's supposed to, how it's supposed to happen. But another place we Paul, find Paul confronting open sinfulness uh, here and, and instructing the church, which is still pertinent for us today, is found in 1 Timothy 1.18. He says in verse 18, he says, this I command, this command I entrust to you. So is it optional? No, it's, this is serious, right? He starts almost all of these with this I command to you. So he's talking to Timothy. Timothy's having some difficulty, and then there's a long parenthetical statement. Uh, Paul tends to have a sentence that's a paragraph long, and this is one of those where he gives a parenthetical statement. And then he says this, look, at, look forward. He says, fight the good fight. Keeping faith, verse 19, and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So you've got to see where he's going. So don't fall into that trap, Timothy. Fight the good fight. Keep faith, a good conscience, which have reject, some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And that's how the Lord describes people who are walking in open sinfulness. They've shipwrecked their faith. That's what happens when somebody takes a close look at your testimony and it doesn't line up. If you're one thing at the church and then the rest of the week you live like the world, listen, the world's not saying something different about him. They're saying, why should I be a believer? He's just like me. So that's the issue. And then he says, among these, so he's going to give an illustration, are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so they'll be taught not to blaspheme. So again, we see very similar language again. What is this? This is discipline. So In other words, when I was with you in Ephesus, Timothy, I took Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were shipwrecking their faith, who were twisting the truth and teaching error, and I put them out of the church, and he says, and I went through that, you know, this process already. So we understand what the process is. We don't suppose that Paul uh, short-circuited that process in any way. There would have have been well-established, a number of witnesses who could understand what was going on and had witnessed what was going on, and so he came there and just followed up with all that we had to to be uh, done. Every word was firmly established, and, and when they wouldn't repent, they were put out of the church. Well, that seemed kind of harsh, you know. I mean, 
I mean, they have a right to their own opinion. That's kind of unloving. You mean it's not okay for people to believe whatever they want as long as they're sincere about it? Uh, no. Well, lots of people believe that and they're really sincere about it, so we won't teach this one thing because lots of people believe a different way. Really? Is that a surprise to anyone that people don't believe correctly, but they believe it sincerely? What's the point of saying don't be deceived and then giving correct doctrine if your own doctrinal statement says one thing, but you won't defend it because other people think something else? I mean, seriously, it's like that automatically becomes the justification that it must be legit because lots of people think it's right. Well, according to Paul, Hymenaeus and Alexander didn't have it right, and they didn't have it right, and they had to correct it, and they wouldn't correct it, and so they got put out. And that's just discipline, see? And it is loving. It's loving to say, listen, what you're believing is wrong, and you can't keep teaching that here and distorting what's going on here and causing a stumbling block you can't stay. And so very important. Again, a good illustration. And as we've seen, you know, Jesus loves the church, and he desires her purity. We can't come away from Revelation 2 or 3 with any other thing besides that. And Paul knew that Jesus wants to present to himself uh, a church purity in doctrine, purity in faith, purity in conduct. Ephesians 5.27, the church in all her glory. Isn't that lovely? He, he, he foresees a church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus provides for the church to show forth fruit of repentance and holiness. And Revelation 3.19, it is loving. These whom I love I reprove, and I discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. It's, it's loving to come alongside someone who's living in open immorality and say, this is wrong, and you're, you're poisoning your testimony, you're destroying your future marriage, it, and you're, you're hindering the testimony of the church in living this way, and you can't go on living this way. Please turn. Please. So he wants the church to look after the church primarily, and then when it gets to the point uh, where the church won't do it, or it's got to the point where it's gone through the witnesses, then the leaders have to look after the church. And last time we looked at, and this is just, it's worth a, just a quick review um, we looked at Jesus' teaching in Luke 17, again, early in the formation of the church like Matthew 18, and he says to the church and, and the relationships that will follow, he says, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Where are they going to come? They come into Christianity. They're going to come into the assembly. Um, they're going to be people who are in sin, who are continue in a pattern of sin, but woe to him through whom they come. Somebody who continues in open sinfulness, that, woe to them. And this is Jesus saying it. So when Jesus says, woe to you if you're doing it, that's for you to pull up and say, whoa, that's important. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he would cause one of these little ones to stumble over the stumbling block of unrepentant, continuous sin in front of them. That's the whole idea, see? How do we know that? Look at verse 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Be on your guard. Well, who's it assigned to? Every single disciple after them. Be on your guard. Watch. Help. Instruct. Come alongside. Bear. Encourage. So Jesus is serious about the purity of the church. I don't think you can come away from that shocking statement any differently that if someone is a stumbling block in the church and he's leading a bunch of people astray, it would have been better that his life was over than if continue in that position. That's Jesus' words. So Paul says, I had to put them out of the church. That sometimes has to happen if people won't repent. We see that over and over. God expects it to be done. And then the church does the right thing. And then he takes over as they're out from under that protection of the fellowship because you put them out. And now he comes in and perhaps uses Satan or demons, as we've looked at before, to bring about chastening. And here's the thing. Mark this. Reveal the true nature of the relationship or lack of it with him. 
if the chastening he brings on them, or if you put them out and there's no chastening, you can be pretty confident they were never born again to begin with because their, their fate's already sealed. They're already under a curse. If you put them out and they are a believer, you would expect chastening, and that chastening would bring them back to repentance because that's what we're always... Discipline is always about repentance. It's always about restoration. And so you would expect that to be the case. So... Paul says, I turned them over to Satan so they would learn not to blaspheme. And I think we can see this. Uh, even if, if this week and last week were new to you, I think you can begin to see this is very clearly a pattern that the church is supposed to follow. So just this last confrontation by Paul, it gives us instruction to Titus. Look there if you would. Uh, it's very close to where you were. Titus chapter 3, verse 9. I'll wait till you get there. It's very important and, and very clear. <coughs> Titus 3, 9 through 11, and, um, and here, uh, Paul, he gives this instruction to Titus, and so the context is, in, when you're there in Crete, you're pastoring, make sure you, here's what it says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. What's, what's the deal? This is somebody who always likes to argue about some certain minutia. Somebody wants to bring some certain thing up. Somebody who's always playing. This is, this is just great. They call it, they actually label themselves. I'm just playing the devil's advocate here. Really? Well, in the church, that's a pretty good name for you. Right? Because if you're sowing discord, you're creating a lot of problems. So this is somebody who wants to argue all the time. Somebody who's always got to be on the other side. Mark this. Verse 10. What's it say? Reject a factious Somebody who is always trying to argue. Somebody who always wants to have some kind of disagreement with somebody. Reject a factious man after the first and second warning. Again, just going through that process. And then he encourages Titus and says, listen, knowing this, that such a man is perverted and sinning being self-condemned. There's already something going on there. It's just manifesting itself in this argumentative attitude that's prevalent in the church. So don't be afraid of having to go through this process. It's not going to be fun. It's going to bring you low. It's going to be humiliating. You're going to weep over it, but it's something you have to do. Why? Because a factious man just sows that discord of faction in the church constantly at argumentative, uh, disagreeable types of things. So someone won't stop arguing, always creating trouble. Go through the process with them, warn them, admonish them, correct them. There'll be plenty of people who've been exposed to it, and you'll have to bring them in, and then once that's all done, if they won't listen, put them out. Was Paul confrontive? Yes. Absolutely. Was he compassionate? I don't think we could say that he wasn't. He certainly showed that compassion. Was he loving? Yes. And he demonstrated love by his actions. And we've seen this since we started in chapter 12, verse 12. He persevered with them. He was selfless. He was devoted to them. These are all the examples we marked since we started this study. He, he was he was joyfully poured himself out for them, spending and being expended. He was humble in the face of all the harshness that came towards him, and he reined his life in, and that's a sacrifice too, beloved. You know, when somebody wants to lead, they've got to rein their life in. You can't be doing stuff, saying one thing, doing the other thing, and you just embarrass yourself. You embarrass the gospel. You, you derail people, see? So he's, he, was, he reined his life in. He didn't want to undermine his testimony with them. We saw an example that he loved them by being truthful and forthright and sincere. So in other words, he didn't tickle their ears. He told them what they needed to hear. No matter what happened, his single focus was to bring people to maturity, to build for your upbuilding beloved. You thought, I was, you thought I was defending myself this whole time. I wasn't. I was just trying to build you up, trying to sanctify you. See, 
Many different types of sins plagued the church from the start. They plague the church still. Things like strife and jealousy and angry tempers and disputes and slanders and arrogance and gossip and disturbances and impurity and immorality. See, when I come, Paul says, I may be found by you not to be what you wish. Listen, if you're staying just like that, it's going to be trouble. Paul loved them enough to address the hard things. His love for them, them caused him super deep despair and, and, and humiliation because he was so invested in their spiritual health. And it encroached on him constantly, and he worried about it when somebody was in sin. He loved them enough to teach them and admonish them and correct them and instruct them so they might come to what? Repentance. But some have resisted, and now he's coming. And all that compassion and the gentleness and the love will bring him to deal with the sin issues in person he loved them enough to pursue discipline because he knew these issues had infected and weakened believers and it cut them off from the blessing and joy that God had planned for them. And he knew, too, that through this unrepentant sin, the church would eventually lose its effectiveness and its power and its impact. So he wept tears over these people, and he loved them. And he says to those who remain stubbornly, look back at our cop now, our passage, and we're going to push right on to the end, get to verse 4. 2 Corinthians 13, 2, he says to them, I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, in advance I say that those who have sinned in the past. In other words, I, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present in my second visit. So he had these words with them before. People in open sinfulness in the church. He didn't go through discipline at that point, but warned them, you need to repent. And so he uses these words, and this is very important, and I think this is a, um, uh, some qualifiers for discipline, and I think so these will fit in with your understanding of this doctrine. Those who've sinned in the past, what's that mean? Well, everybody sinned in the past, right? I mean, I sinned probably today, and you did too probably, and certainly this week. So we can't be talking about just everybody who sinned. What are we talking about? We're talking about people who continue in sin and haven't repented. How do we know that? Well, it's... Um, Pro-am martano is a perfect active participle. Pro is before, of course, and harmatano is the word for missing the mark. That's the word for sin, missing the mark. It's what we use when we're bow, when we're um, shooting our bow in official bow competitions. A sin, they call it a sin, but it's just called missing the mark. So the idea is, in in the perfect, it's indicating that earlier sins persist till now. They continue. Who's it addressed to? people who Paul spoke with during his second visit, and they're still in unrepentance in now. That's the context. So that's a qualifier and very important. People were participating in sin in the church. It appears from this passage that he warned those con uh, concerned that if they didn't repent and turn, uh, he would exercise discipline during his next visit. So they'd been given time to think and act on those matters. So that's who he's, he's addressing it to. As another qualifier, too, and it's this one. Uh, he says, and to all the rest as well, Who's that? Well, these are people who have been negatively influenced by unrepentant sin. That's the leaven leavening the whole lump. That's the idea of they've kind of joined in with it. They, they're, they're in unrepentant sin themselves. That happens uh, pretty often, actually, when you don't deal with it. And, uh, or those who would defend or condone what's going on. And that's the other qualifier for discipline. Those who jumped in and they would say, um, you know, you, like in 1 Corinthians 5.2, he says, you've become arrogant. Those who are arrogant about it. The idea is what we were talking about a few weeks ago, the attitude of, you know, don't meddle in my affairs, don't poke around in my life. Okay, people who would say that, you don't have any right to do this, don't say this about me, you know. Uh, we have the right to do what we want. I mean, we're our own person in Christ. Or the modern 
Um, we're very open-minded, non-judgmental. You have a place here. You're valued, loved. Be who you are. And it's not that you don't have a place here. You do. And we, uh, the invitation is open to everybody, but not to stay where they are. We're not going to celebrate sinfulness, see, like many of the denominations do today. Somehow they think that that makes them more, uh, it does make them more uh, appealing in the eyes of the world, but it's anathema in the eyes of the Lord because he wants a pure church, right? Come in in your sin, but what are you going to do? Repent. Come to faith. Give up your life to find it. But you have churches uh, in a society, some churches have become like it. Why? Because they're worldly and they haven't dealt with the worldly sin that's there. And they don't want anybody to tell them what's right and what's wrong and what is true. See, so, and, and that's illustrative here. If you are witnessing, you go to a homosexual, perhaps in a church format, and confront them with that sin, he'll call you a homophobe. And so he switched the tables on it. Now you're the one who's in the wrong, see? You're the one who's, who's unreasonable and judgmental, and you're made to look like you're the one who's, in, who's false, see? Or if you teach that, you know, the husband is the head of the wife and, and, and over uh, the spiritual things in, in the home, uh, they'll switch that on you and call you, you know, every single thing you get, everything that you've heard, right? This is what we hear in the news all the time. We have a whole society that's made up of men dominating women, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. But you're made to look like you're the idiot, right? For even saying it, you're the one who's in sin and, and you're the one who's judgmental and you're the one who's unchristian. See, that's, that's what we have now in the church because we've switched everything around and the church is worldly. So when you say, you talk about sin, then you get in trouble. And that just sets the stage to obscure all of God's moral laws and his warnings, doesn't it? That's perfect. It makes the church just like the world and everybody comes in and they're super happy about it. So, so this statement applies today as much as it applied to Corinthian church. And then he says this, uh, as he says, he goes, um, it's all sin in the past, we get that. And to all the rest as well. So then the church is instructed then to look around. This is, again, a chance for the church to act on the things that Paul has talked about. Uh, opportunities for repentance apart from discipline. They've dwindled right down. There's only a few more moments that are going to be left before I get there. Anybody hanging in the wings in unrepentant sin? Undiscovered yet, but you've been doing it for a while. See, action's going to be taken because it's essential. And now look at verse 3. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who's not weak toward you but mighty in you. So not only are there persistent sins like, like gossip and slander going on and moral failings, of course, there is a consistent criticism of Paul, right? He's a failure in the ministry. He does a terrible job, right? He has no idea what to do. We looked at all this, how they criticized him. You know, the same kinds of little side swipes that existed in churches. That's what they say about their pastors. He has no idea what he's doing. He has no idea what he's talking about. He has no idea how to do this, right? That's how they criticize Paul, still criticize people today. So Paul takes the time to say, he recognizes that he's never, come to, he's never come and confronted that directly, but these are things that get said. He says this, listen, I know you're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me. So Paul knows he faces this miserable prospect of a face-to-face -face with people who want him to show that he's an apostle. Something that's going to prove that he's God's man for this church. And proof is a word we've seen before. That's that dokima. That's, that's the, the word that goes with certifying money. The person who who in, in uh, ancient times was a person who certified that the gold was the size and weight it was supposed to be. And so some merchants didn't take any gold that hadn't been certified that it was the right size and it was the right weight. And so this idea of proof is just these guys want Paul to confirm, right, that, that uh, he's the real deal, some kind of proof that he is, some stamp. So they're saying, you know, we want proof that it's really Christ speaking in you. How do we know that's not just your opinion? That happens often when you deal with people who are in sin. 
that's just your opinion. Well, actually, no. No, I, I just read a Bible passage to you that applies to your situation. Well, not all everybody thinks that's what that means. Well, yeah, I'm aware of that, but it's pretty clear what it means, and so this is how we're applying that. But um, how do we know it's not just your opinion, Paul? You, you may, you're, you're just telling us what you want to tell us. You're just saying what your own view is and, you know, and what, your own idea. How do we know? Give us some proof of the Christ who speaks in you. That's the whole implication here with Paul's statement. Now, I, wanted, I want you to see something. I'm going to put it on the screen for you just quickly because it's a great illustration. So this is how it should have been. So in the Thessalonian church, of course, we just saw some correcting that had to be done. It's not unusual. It's a church filled with flawed people. needs some correction. But on the whole, the, Corinthian, uh, the Thessalonian church was doing a really good job. And then he says this to them, and I love, and this is so encouraging. I think you'll really enjoy this. As he's writing to them, and they're going to read this letter, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, that sounds a lot like what he did in Corinth, and we just looked at why he was doing it. Why? Because there was many people not working, and he felt like if he took support from the church here in Thessalonica, then they'd just kind of lump him in and say, oh, yeah, well, you tell us we're not working, but you're taking support from the church. So he just said, well, we're not going to miss my teaching opportunity, so I won't take any support. And so he just says, remember, I came and I worked hard. And then verse 10, he says, you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. So you can remember this. You saw what we did. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you, as a father would his own children. So there's that tenderness, there's that compassion. It's always part of Paul's ministry, even in saying the hard things, sacrificing for his children along with instruction, which is so typical of Paul and an example to ministers everywhere. And it's the illustration of parents and how they're to deal with their children and compassion and gentleness and sacrificial uh, offering. Okay, so that's how he's dealing with them. And it says, verse 12, verse 12, so that you would walk, he did this all so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You get, and, you know, again, and I try to stop and, and, and take a snapshot of this. If you're looking for a soundbite that describes Christianity, they're all through the New Testament. That's one, isn't it? I think this resonates with you if you know Christ. Verse 12, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We all aspire to that, don't we? We want to walk in that manner. That's just a really joyous way of saying that's what it looks like to be a believer. A consistent effort on our part to walk in that way, repenting, keeping a short sins list, rejoicing in what God has done, and growing in sanctification. So very, 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 very common way to refer to the church, and you guys can resonate with that. Now mark their response as compared to the Corinthian response, verse 13. <clears throat> For this reason, we constantly thank God. Why do we thank God? Well, this is an, a great response. Here, here it is. That when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, mark it, you accepted it not as the word of men. So in other words, you didn't think it was my opinion. Or I was just putting on you what I thought you should do. But for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So not only did you not think it was my opinion, you knew it was the word of God, you, and it resonated with you. And that's what happens when believers hear what the word of God says. It resonates with them. They recognize it's not the person. It's the Lord himself. So he says to the church in Corinth, go back to there, because this is the opposite reaction. You're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, huh? You haven't had enough already? I mean, remember chapter 12, verse 12? The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Remember that? And we talked about the apostleship and how that's not repeated today, and it's a small subset of people who met qualifications, but they had these sign gifts, and they, it, it, uh, 
It verified the message, and it verified the messenger. Paul said, you saw all that. It was done in, in front of you. They had proof of the miracles Paul had done there. That was proof enough. But there was even more proof, too, wasn't there? How about you're saved, you're justified, you've been regenerated, you've been converted, you've been transformed, you're changed, you're born again, you've been redeemed. Isn't that indicative of the fact that the truth came through me, saving truth? It wasn't my words. It was the power of God working there. But not only that, you're in the process of being sanctified, right? You're in the process of growing and maturing and being nurtured and becoming more like Christ. Isn't that evidence? See? So they had evidence from the signs, they had evidence from salvation, and they had evidence from sanctification. That's what he means when he says, who's not weak towards you, but mighty in you. That's what he meant to, uh, in the Thessalonica church. He says, it was the word, not the word of men, but really the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. It goes to work in you. It was actually God's word, and it began to work in you in all these things we just said. So they want him to prove that he's God's man for the church. So this is, this is the thing that's hanging over his head. He's going to show up there, and he's going to have to have this very sad meeting and try to show evidence that already is in abundance amongst the churches. And not only that, he's going to have to come and discipline some. So again, he's going to have to show that authority uh, in disciplining. And we saw from Matthew 18 last week, there are four steps to that discipline. You go to your brother personally. You go with two or three witnesses who've actually witnessed the sin if they won't respond to, the wit- to those repent- in repentance and those two steps, you tell the church. If they won't listen to the whole church, you put them out. And then, we didn't look at this last time, but I think it's very important to remember, in Matthew 18, 18, so the next verse after that section, truly Jesus says to them, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, It shall be done for them by my Father who's in heaven, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst. So put that together. When you're in the middle of discipline, seeking to keep the church pure and spotless and free of the corrupting nature of unrepentant sinfulness, Jesus says you're declaring what's already been declared in heaven. You're just doing what we've already said to do and understand to be true, and you're following exactly what I want you to do. And then Jesus says after that, And there I am, what? In the midst of them. In the middle of the hardship. In the middle of what people say, oh, that'll destroy the church. I don't think so. I think if ever Jesus is in the middle, that he's in the middle of making sure his church is pure, see? So Paul writes, you know, since you're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who's not weak toward you but mighty in you, that's our 12th example from Paul of a faithful minister desiring that Christ speak through them. That's always the desire, isn't it? When you give the Word of God out, you want people to receive it as if Christ was actually speaking. Every elder who is faithful to the Lord, who understands his role, would love to, to be a living illustration of that See? for their whole life. That would be perfect. I'd be perfectly content with that no matter what I've, I've accomplished in the Lord's power. I'd be perfectly content with this. You were a faithful illustration of Christ speaking through you. That's perfectly good. I'm good with just that. 30 years of doing it, I'd be perfectly fine. That's our desire. That's our calling for Christ to speak through you. And you know this, and I'm not, and I'm not talking, of course, about the false Catholic doctrine of ex cathedra, okay? That you can say as the Pope whatever you want, and it's not wrong. No, that's wrong. Okay? And that's what we're talking about. I'm talking about what we've pointed out so many times before, a faithfulness to what the Word says, what it means by what it says, and its application. 
over and over and over and over and over and over. That's all you have to do, okay? That, that's not complicated. It's hard because of the reasons I gave you at the beginning. It might be hard to understand. It might be hard to hear. It might be hard to speak because of what's going on in my own life. But regardless, it is very simple. And the goal is 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God. How can I do that? A workman who does not need to be ashamed. How can I make sure I'm not ashamed? Accurately handling the word of truth. And that, that's a, uh, it's cutting a straight cut. And it has the idea of a, a carpenter making a jig and cutting the same thing over and over again. And then when you take it and it fits where it's supposed to fit. And then you, you, you understand a word and you can pull it out of that passage of Scripture and you come over and see the same word in another passage of Scripture and you drop it in and it means what it's, what it's may, meant in the other passage. And you, you're doing it right, okay? And the guidelines, of course, are ones we've looked at, Second Corinthians 2.17 and 3.5. For we are not like many, Paul says, peddling the word of God, right? A shyster, like a used car salesman, you know, saying things from the word of God to get you to do something, right? Get, elicit a response, mostly in the false churches today. It's so you'll give them money, right? Because it's all about bilking the church out or whatever. But it can be any kind of manipulating the church, come forward and do something. You know, this is, this is, the, this is the shysterous type of teaching, the peddling, the Furtec types of teaching. It, but as from sincerity, but as from God, see, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. See, it's, it's not all those things trying to manipulate you, just in sincerity, teaching what the Word says so that you will receive it as from Christ. See. Chapter 3, verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Right? Always knowing that inside your own flesh and your own resources, you don't have anything to offer that will make any difference whatsoever for eternity. And that's our calling, Christ to speak through us. And not in an audible voice, obviously, right? You know, he speaks to us when we proclaim his word. And he speaks through us when we proclaim his word. When you speak the word of Christ, Christ speaks in you at that point. So that's the question, and that should always be the question. Are you teaching what the word of God actually says? Not what you'd like to teach and then using the word of God to support it. But what does the word of God actually say? Taking it from the kitchen to the table without spilling it, as we looked at before. If so, then Jesus is able to speak through you. And just as a footnote, don't say, Jesus told me this, and I'm going to tell you this, okay? Don't say that. That's not how that works. And you don't have any way to verify that, and neither do I, okay? You don't know if that voice in your own head is your own conscience talking to you. It's an own voice that you've generated. There's no way for you to discern that, and that's not what the Lord wants you to do. So don't go up to somebody, Jesus told me to tell you that. Okay, if you tell me that, you already know what I'm thinking, Okay? There's no way that I'm going to believe this, and there's no way that they can know this is from Jesus. You want me to believe that you're speaking through Christ? Then speak the word of God to me, okay? Say, I read this, and I want to share it with you. That would be a huge blessing to me. Then you're speaking the word of Christ, see? If you speak what is known to be the word of Christ, you're going to be a blessing to me and everybody else around you. Not Jesus told me to tell you this. And those passages go to work, beloved. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active, why would we ignore it as a minister? It's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, that's where the power is. It's not anything I bring to the table. It's not something Paul wanted to bring so they would think he was so great, so great right? 
Dr. Parker is you know, very well known in the religious community. Big deal, right? That, that, that's the modern-day Phariseeism. They seek high places in the best seats in the council and want people to, to acknowledge them, right? It has no power there. Paul says, I, want you to, I don't want you to think anything about me but what you see, to be, see in me and know to be in me. That's it. I'm not important at all, Paul says. But the Word of God is powerful, and it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart, and that's what we want, isn't it? That's what I want when I read the Word of God, and that's what you want when you hear it and read it yourself. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. Listen, beloved, I don't know what's going on in your life, and I don't know the struggles you're having right now, where your thought life is or whatever, and you don't know mine. But you know what? There's no creature hidden from his sight. You open the Word of God and start reading it, and it opens it up for everybody. It's doing work in everybody's life. If you're listening to the Word of God and you want to respond to it, oh, you'll get it. And all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of whom, with whom, uh, to the eyes of him, with whom we have to do. Everybody comes under the authority of the Lord, whether you like it now or not. And the Word of God makes it clear and opens all of that up. Paul says, Christ is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. It's always power. When believers act in line with the truth of God's word. Jesus is the, light, uh, is the Lord of the church. He expresses authority in his church through his word proclaimed by men who lead it. Now we're out of time, so we're going to close with this. Look at verse 4. Paul says, For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God, for we also are weak in him. Yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. There's so much wonderful, so many wonderful things in there. I just want to, I want to give you this. Who is he there in the passage? That's Jesus. So I want you to get this. You say I'm weak and not powerful. Paul would say, I agree. I agree. I'm weak and not powerful. In fact, that's our next example of a faithful minister. He knows he has no power or ability of his own to accomplish anything of eternal value. He doesn't have anything, he doesn't bring anything to the table in his own flesh, in his own ability, his own education, in any possible way to make any difference. Completely powerless. And then he uses Jesus as an illustration. And we're going to pick up here next week, Lord willing. But the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it's irrefutable evidence of his weakness. Okay? And that's the illustration. Jesus, in his crucifixion, that was weakness. What's that mean? Or just this. He came into the world in the form of a servant. He emptied himself of all of his power, right? Philippians 2 says he humbled himself and became in the fashion of a man, weak, tired, sad, sorrowful, disappointed. He wept as a servant. He was humbled and betrayed and mocked and falsely accused. This is Jesus. By all appearances, what? Weak. The religious leaders of the day thought he was weak. The religious leaders of the day knew he didn't have any power in their mind, and they could do what they wanted with him with no consequences. And he came obedient, it says, even unto death. The author of all life, the resurrection and the life, submitted himself to the most obvious indication of a cursed, sinful world. He let himself be whipped by wicked men and put to death by wicked men. And then yet, Paul says, he lives because of the power of God. The resurrection. God raised him from the dead. He was so weak that his enemies defeated and executed him in the most demeaning and degrading and dishonorable manner possible. God in human form, fully human, so susceptible to death. And yet, it says, he lives in power. He was made alive and he came out of the grave on the third day. And his resurrection being the most significant evidence and the disclosure of his power. So now let's put it together. So Paul uses Jesus and just says, listen. He was weak all the way to death, and yet he's alive because of the power of God. And Paul then 
says, yes, I don't have anything to bring to the table. And yes, I'm weak. In fear and trembling, he endures a lot. He lives with grief, discomfort, need, frustration. He's been crushed and abused and spurned and demeaned and disrespected and mocked. And he says this. This is so great. We are weak in him, yet what? We shall live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. He gives all the glory to God for whatever can be accomplished. He says, listen, just like Jesus was weak unto death, but raised in the power of God, I'm weak. I've got nothing to offer, but because of God's power in me, it's at work in you. And that's just a, a great way, to, again, to just, just come across as a faithful minister. You don't have any power or ability to accomplish anything on your own. It's whatever the Lord's going to accomplish. And remember this, this remarkable passage, and this is what we're going to close with. Paul's having a difficulty. The Lord's bringing chastening on him to keep him humble. Paul wants it to be gone. He says, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. We think power is perfected in power, right? We think power is perfected in a persona, being able to do something because people respect you. Paul says, Jesus says to Paul, my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, Paul says. I'll gladly do it, not, oh, well, okay. So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I'll exchange my own power and persona and let the power of Christ dwell in me. And therefore, I am well content with weaknesses and insults and distresses and persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm a great illustration those last two verses of what it takes to be great in God's eyes they're not talking about false humility you know I can't do anything I'm not able to be used not that okay just willing for God to get all the credit see as the people are blessed and grow in the power of the Holy Spirit through what the written word God gets the power God gets the, the glory he gets the credit it's all for us today let's bow and be dismissed in prayer Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. Very grateful for that every day, that, that we can spend time in your word privately and we can come together corporately and do the same thing. Thank you for uh, the fellowship of believers in both churches and the joy that we have in worshiping you and in giving of what we have and then in, in the word together and praying and, and humbling ourselves and, and coming under your authority. And Lord, I pray that you'll work these things out. You give out your word and it goes out and accomplishes what you seek to accomplish by it. And so I know you've done that today. I'm grateful, Lord, for, for your, the power and your desire to work in the church and, and that you know our deeds and you, you tell us what to, what to fix and you use your word to do it. And I pray that we'll be those kinds of responsive believers. Thank you for this week ahead of us. Many are going to be traveling. Many will be gone for some or at home for a break and, and needed rest. And, Lord, I pray that you'll provide that for them, restore them and charge them back, back up and encourage them. And, Lord, um, thank you for the opportunity for some rest and, and uh and Lord, we pray that as we go out, that wherever we go, we'll, and the people we bump into, minister grace to them, and be an example of godliness, quick to give the word out as we get opportunities so that some might come to faith, and be the part of the salt and light you want us to be. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.